Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Welcome to Talk. I'm your host, Timmy G, for Wednesday, February 28th, 2018. Before we get into some news here, I feel it important just to mention that any articles that I share on the show, I don't share them necessarily because I agree with them or disagree with them. I just share them because it's interesting information and it's coming at the topic of mental and emotional well-being from some different vantage points. So if there's something that's shared that you agree with and it's helpful or meaningful to you, then that's great. And if it's not, or you disagree with it, or you think it's downright bad, uh, that's okay too. But just know that during the news segment, these are articles that I'm featuring from various parts of the world written by other people. And uh, if you vehemently disagree with something, don't email me, email the author of the article. Okay, we're looking at an article at mdmag.com. This is by Matt Hoffman. Recent article, Running Away or Writing the Way, Is Psilocybin a Viable Psychiatric Treatment? Richard Cohn was going to die, just like everybody else. But unlike most, he could foresee his moment of passing. It was coming in two, maybe three more years. At least that's what his oncologist said. Cohn had just been diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer. The burden of disease was only exceeded by the excruciating awareness that before very long, he'd meet his untimely end. Following his diagnosis, he lacked the desire or energy to get out of bed. His only motivation to go on living was spurred by the shoddy hope that return visits to the oncology department might produce some new and unexpected breakthrough. And one day, they did. Following a treatment session, his oncologist approached him with a small pamphlet, only a few pages long, and placed it in his hand. On the cover, Cohn read the words, Coping with Cancer. There was an opportunity within the folios, his doctor said. Cohn wasn't convinced. He says, I had already coped with cancer. He had already lost his eight-year-old daughter, Tanya, to the disease and was just beginning to move on before the condition began to haunt him too. At first, he spurned his doctor's pamphlet. But as time passed, depression continued to weigh on him. Finally, he picked it up, opened the cover, and was met with something extraordinary. The first picture inside was of a mushroom. I guessed right away what it was, Cohn said. The pamphlet called for volunteers who were depressed and had incurable conditions to enroll in a clinical trial of psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient found in some mushrooms. It was a trial led by Roland R. Griffiths, Ph.D., a world-renowned professor of psychiatry at John Hopkins, known widely for his work with mood-altering drugs. Cohn says, I was low-grade but continuously depressed. I had an incurable condition. This was for me, he thought. Psilocybin is one of several psychedelic drugs that has been studied by physicians for its effect on mood, depression, and trauma. Along with MDMA and a few others, it has been periodically involved in clinical research as far back as the 1950s. But in the 70s, right around the time that clinical trial design began to be more closely re-examined to include placebo controls, blinding, and randomization, these drugs were rescheduled by the United States government to their current designation, Schedule 1, meaning no value. You have this mountain of studies until about 1970, and then it stops. All human studies stopped, so there were just ongoing animal studies that were trying to understand their abuse liability, said Charles L. Raison, M.D. professor in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He says there was a hiatus of 26 or 27 years where research was just killed. And when it started again, there were significant difficulties and significant pressure. It was really a challenge. Had psychedelics been available to study in the 1980s when modern pharmacology started to take off, people would have studied it. Physicians and scientists would have been able to push harder to pursue them for an indication. I'm almost certain that we'd be in a totally different world, he says. Absence of clinical evidence soon became a compounded issue. 
When there's no research, attention tends to wane. Not only do clinical trials stop, but meta-analyses and trial reviews cease too. As a result, physician awareness and interest in exploring novel psychedelic therapies dwindles. According to Mike Bogenschutz, MD professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine, generally when you read the reviews, the literature was given a very short shrift and shown to be ineffective. But when you go back and look, several trials found that in fact there was a robust effect of psilocybin over control treatment at the first follow-up and it persisted for at least six months. That evidence alone is strong enough to warrant continued studies on psychedelics, he said. Following the revelatory moment spurred by his oncologist pamphlet, Cohn enrolled in Griffith's trial. As if to make up for the decades-long research drought, Griffith's team worked to gather as much concrete and objective data as possible. For Cohn, the process was arduous. After the first dose, he says, they ask you to sit down and write a report, which was helpful for both them and me. They don't know what's going on inside me, so the reports really cemented the memory. It's sort of like dream. If you write them down right away, you can capture them. I still have the reports, and I look at them occasionally. Before his first double-blinded session with psilocybin, he spent time getting to know his guides, the physicians who attended to him during his sessions. They would need to be comfortable with each other, and if Cohn were ever to become afraid or begin experiencing trouble, the guides would be there to help him through it. There was one point, he says, where I was both moved and afraid, and they sat on the other side of me and just held me. My guides didn't say anything. Uh, They just held me and calmed me down, and things continued. When I was not progressing rapidly on a couple of occasions, they would break in with guided imagery, which really helped unlock me on a few occasions. One of Cone's guides was Bill Richards, MD, a psychologist at Johns Hopkins. Cone said Richards gave him important advice. If in the middle of your trip, a dragon comes at you with huge jaws and teeth, bellowing fire and fumes, write your way. Don't run away. Ask the dragon what it wants. It's your unconscious making this dragon. Cohn says, my unconscious is pissed because I'm ignoring something. It's a clear example of the editing function of our brains, which filters our subconscious being relaxed. Out comes this great frustration. Raison said that patients often confront their demons or dragons in these sessions. It can bring on intense feelings of liberation, he added, because it helps them feel as if they've mastered something or moved beyond a hurdle that was holding them back. Cohn's dragon was the grief that surrounded his daughter's death. In his first session, he found himself thinking of Tanya. He had grieved when she got cancer and done his best to cope with her death, but now he found himself grieving and coping all over again. It always seemed to come back to Tanya. I thought I had done my grieving, but on that first trip as I got into it, it re-emerged, Cohn said. I re-experienced the intensity and profundity of the grief that I felt in the immediate aftermath of her death, and I let myself feel that grief even more intensely than I had. Laying on a sofa in a living room filled with the soft sounds of classical music, Cohn found himself sobbing and howling over his daughter's death an event that had passed decades ago. When my wife came back into the room afterward, I told her that I had gone through this intense grieving episode, but she said that I seemed very happy. I was. I had stored up for 25 years some yet-to-be-resolved grief. When I let it go, I felt better. I really felt the intense grief, and that was useful. Since the 70s and 80s, a slow crawl back to the clinical understanding of psychedelics has been gaining momentum. In the mid-1990s, Rick Strassman, M.D., conducted a DMT study in New New Mexico. In Switzerland, Franz Vollenweider, M.D., began trials following in the footsteps of research from the 1960s with the hypothesis that therapies could be models for psychosis. Then in the 2000s, Griffiths began exploring the effectiveness of psilocybin for treating patients with depression, anxiety, and other conditions. Roland and his crew began doing careful studies and normal controls that showed that it was safe, people did not freak out, and it had beneficial effects on personality, according to Raison. Institutions like the USONA Research Institute and the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies have spearheaded different studies and clinical examinations of these drugs. 
Raison likened his organizations to nonprofit pharmaceutical companies that have been effective in acquiring funding for trials from donations and grants. I didn't know that anyone was giving psilocybin to people in clinical settings, Bogenschutz said of the recent trials. Turns out that under carefully controlled conditions, it appears to be safe and well-tolerated and causes very minimal persistent adverse effects. For very many people, it appears to be, in their estimate, a very positive experience. One of the trials that caught his eye was Griffiths. Another in 2012 was a meta-analysis that combed through older trials to determine what should produce results that could be deemed statistically significant and clinically relevant based on the standards of modern trials. When the results were pooled in that meta-analysis, they were statistically and clinically significant, with an odds ratio close to 2 in favor of the therapy. That's more effective than any FDA-approved treatment for alcoholism. It's interesting. There are some leading institutions that are very much opposed to this work, actually. And then on the other hand, there are some leading institutions in the United States that are all about it. If you look at the places that are doing psilocybin work, they are not second-rate. Yale, Johns Hopkins, University of California at San Francisco, NYU. These are top places, all of which, USONA, are actively involved with. Raison admits that as a researcher, he tends to be out on the far edge of things. But with his involvement in the study of psychedelic therapies, he's become used to and even welcomes skepticism. I would start something and people would look at me like I was crazy. And then it would be a couple years later, people would be looking at me like I was innovative. Then maybe another couple years later, and it would be obvious what I was doing. For a number of years, he says, we didn't get any respect in the medical community, but we just kept at it. People are so desperate for treatments for things like PTSD and depression that they are now overselling these treatments, Raison said. We haven't even done the studies yet, and they're being sort of enthroned in heaven as what's going to be the answer to all of our troubles, which I can promise is not true. The truth is that these treatments, just like any other novel therapy, carry risk and rewards. There have been tragic outcomes associated with illicit psychedelics, and the risk can be mitigated by using controlled settings. You give a talk, and there will be some people who have an entrenched belief that these are dangerous, and using them therapeutically is crazy, Bogenschutz said. Then there are people who are critical of the war on drugs, and maybe are enthusiastic about potential benefits of psychedelics, and want to believe they're magic cures. They're not. Most people, Bogenschutz hopes, will let the evidence speak for itself, and come down somewhere. In the middle. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, CFRC.ca. I will mention that Mr. Cohn, who participated in the psilocybin clinical trial, that his cancer is now under control. There's no evidence to suggest that it should be tied to his participation in psychedelic therapy, but the fact remains that psilocybin helped Cohn open the door to a new life. He says, It's like I'm realizing I'm alive and I'm okay. I'd like to live fully and enjoy it. To be depressed is no way to do that. I feel free now to enjoy it, to not be depressed. It was transforming. He also describes this connection between the conscious and the subconscious. He says it's a little like opening up the connections between these two, like putting aside the editing function of your brain. Everything that arises in our unconscious doesn't emerge. Somewhere in there is an editor. But this is like the editor getting relaxed. Not dismissed altogether, but more willing to let things happen. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the drug carfentanil. It is the latest synthetic derivative of fentanyl. A unit of carfentanil is 100 times as potent as the same amount of fentanyl, 5,000 times as potent as a unit of heroin, and 10,000 times as potent as a unit of morphine. So this leads us into our next article coming out of the Globe and Mail. Some things happening in B.C., it should make us concerned. BC's top lawmaker says the province will bring in new concrete measures to close the loopholes that allow lenders connected to the fentanyl trade to launder money by granting large cash loans and mortgages to Vancouver area property owners. Attorney General David Eby said possible changes include requiring private lenders to provide proof of how the money they are loaning was obtained and provide more information about who they are before they can register a mortgage or claim against real estate. Three of the lenders were caught carrying more than $600,000 in fentanyl-laced cash in 2016. 
They have collectively registered more than $20 million in mortgages and other debts against multi-million dollar homes in recent years. The Globe identified a sample of 45 properties in all where such lenders claimed a $47 million stake, which represents just a fraction of the scope of this enterprise in B.C. Their lenders are repaid in clean money plus interest through loan payments or payouts when the homes are sold. Their target customers are wealthy newcomers from China who already own property in Canada but are looking for extra cash. The borrowers often have money overseas but are unable to transfer it to this country because China doesn't allow its citizens to take more than 50000 U.S. a year abroad. Mr. Eby called it a massive opportunity for the government to end these practices without delay. Over the weekend, he said he instructed former RCMP Deputy Commissioner Peter German, who is investigating money laundering in casinos, to expand his probe to include real estate lending. Mr. German is expected to deliver his report next month, which Mr. Eby says will inform the government on what changes will be most effective. We do understand the urgency, but we also understand the need for our response to be as comprehensive as possible. Some of the lenders the Globe identified have been well-known to police for years for alleged drug trafficking and money laundering on an international scale. When asked why none has been charged, Mr. Eby said police are very engaged and there is an active investigation. The government regulator that oversees mortgage brokers said it, it is also launching a probe because it has the power to find anyone issuing mortgages without a broker's license. We are ultimately able to pursue jail time. We treat this very seriously, said Chris Carter, registrar of mortgage brokers for the BC Financial Institutions Commission. The money lenders that the Globe looked into are unlicensed, and some charge annual interest rates ranging from 40% to 120%. Canada's maximum legal rate is 60%. What you would appear to have is predatory practices and vulnerable consumers. That is squarely within the type of activity that we are concerned about, Mr. Carter said. An agency that analyzes international money laundering schemes said regulators in other provinces should take heed. I doubt that it's just a Vancouver problem. We have the same lack of transparency within the real estate sector across Canada, said James Cohen, Director of Policy and Programs for Transparency International Canada. Private lenders and mortgage brokers aren't required to do little, if any, reporting. And in the real estate sector, there is not much follow-up. We are a little asleep on how bad it is here. The transaction the Globe uncovered were made possible by BC solicitors who registered mortgages and filed court claims on the lender's behalf. The federal government says it is now working on new rules to make that more difficult. A recent risk assessment carried out by the Government of Canada found that the legal sector poses a high risk of money laundering, uh, according to spokesman Jack Aubrey. It is the Department of Finance's intention to develop constitutionally compliant legislative and regulatory provisions that would subject legal counsel and legal firms to the anti-money laundering regime. Meanwhile, about 150 people showed up at a rally in downtown Vancouver Sunday afternoon aimed at pushing the province to make housing more affordable, in part by providing more money in this week's budget to crack down on illegal market activity. We need a crime task force or a criminal investigation into the real estate industry, co-organizer Brad Barrett said. Nobody is playing the role of the regulator, said David Chen, a financial planner who spoke at the rally. We need our governments to fulfill their duty to us and become that regulator. Mr. Eby insisted it is one of his top priorities to do just that. It is a huge personal priority for me, and I am engaged in it very fully, he said. I believe we are taking all the steps necessary aimed at closing these loopholes and getting BC's international reputation back on track. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the World Wide Web, cfrc.ca. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview.
Today I'm pleased to welcome Kaylee and Mike from Keys Job Center here in Kingston. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to talk to you. So I'm excited to learn more about your program and, and what it does for the community and how it's helping people. What's the name of your program at uh, Keys and, and what does it aim to do? Yeah, so it's called the Insight Youth Mentoring Program at Keys Job Center. Um, we're, we're here to help youth facing barriers to employment um, to work on career exploration, um, and we do that by connecting them with a mentor. So a mentor is basically an adult volunteer who wants to, to work with youth, um, who will spend time with them about once a week, usually about an hour a week, over a period of five months. Um, you know, just having conversations, getting to know each other, um, and yeah, kind of helping helping them to, to make decisions about their futures. So we really try to connect with youth um, on their career path, like where they're at. So some clients might, um, you know, want to go to, to college and they just, um, you know, want to work on uh, applications or looking at different options with a mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, and other clients are in a different place, you know, sometimes... Um, you know, they, they might have a lot of anxiety or something like that, and they just need somebody to talk to, um, you know, and just uh, maybe somebody to listen to them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, uh, we have a pretty flexible program, and, um, yeah, we're really proud of it. So I think, uh, I think it's really great because we believe that the presence of a caring adult in the life of a young person is... is uh, an important factor in, in success, you know, in, in the employment world and in school. Yeah. And a lot of us are lucky enough to have natural mentors in our lives, like, you know, maybe in a parent or a teacher or, or a boss. Um, and others um, uh, may not have one. So that's what our program is here for, to, uh, to offer um, adult mentors in, um, to young people who could benefit from them. That's great. And how long has it been uh, operating? Um, we've been around for almost two years now, so this program started in spring 2016. Um, so we've grown a lot since then. Um, there's been a lot of program development, uh, you know, based on uh, feedback that we've got from, from the clients and from our mentors and from community partners. Okay. So, um, yeah, we're really proud of it. We've developed a mentor training series because um, it seems to really help uh, mentors um, you know, with their expectations and just kind of how to approach um, mentoring with, with youth. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And when you say youth, are, you, are we talking like 18 to 24 or, or even beyond that? Yeah, good question. So um, we serve youth aged 16 to 24. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's um, pretty much uh, one, our, one of our only requisites. So we prioritize... Um, youth who, who need the program the most and who are kind of most committed to it. But yeah, between, between the ages of 16 to 24. Okay. And, and how, do, how does the process work? How do your clients connect with you? And then what happens from there? Um, so anyone can apply to our program online. Um, that would, it's probably the, um, I guess that's the easiest way. So www.keys.ca and um, just look for, for our program where it says um, job seekers under 30. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the Insight Youth Mentoring Program. Um, we, uh, or someone could call the office if they wanted to, to talk to us, 613-546-5559. Um, they can just ask for Kaylee or Mike with the Youth Mentoring Program. Um, but usually we kind of recruit people in person, we do uh, a little bit of outreach, so we offer workshops, um, you know, at some organizations or here at Keys, and so, you know, uh, we, we reach out to, to youth that we think would be a good fit to our program, and we kind of invite them to, uh, to check it out. Sometimes youth are referred to us by um, our community partners as well. And, and what are some of the, the barriers that your, your clients face that you've you've witnessed now you've been doing this for a couple of years, so I'm sure there's some different types of trends and so forth. What, what are some of the barriers that you see that they're experiencing? So to speak a little bit more about the specific demographic that we work with, 
So yes, definitely age 16 to 24, um, youth that are in a critical period of transition in their life. So maybe they're in high school, grade 11 or grade 12, and they're kind of thinking about next steps. Um, you know, maybe that's uh, post-secondary education, um, but for a lot of the youth that we work with, that's not necessarily an option. For some of them, they'll want to go to college, but for some of them, it's kind of just transitioning into the world of work or an apprenticeship or something, you know, something maybe more practical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the barriers, like we do prioritize working with youth who do face significant barriers. Um, so if someone is coming to us and they have a mental health issue or they're living with a disability, um, whether that's a learning disability, a physical disability, or an intellectual disability, um, then we will, you know, very likely accept them into the program. Um, we also work with immigrant and refugee youth. Um, so that's a whole other set of kind of challenges um, and experiences that, um, that youth are coming into the program with. Uh, we also work with Indigenous youth um, as well. So, and we, we also work with um, LGBTQ youth, um, but we, so the government mandates some of the demographics that we are um, intended to work with, okay. that being immigrant and refugee youth, immigrant or um, Indigenous youth, and youth who have disabilities. Um, and then LGBTQ youth, um, they don't necessarily emphasize that as a point of focus, but we just find that a lot of um, queer and trans youth do come to us for this service, and mm-hmm. and uh, we do prioritize them in our program because they also face um, some significant challenges. Okay. So we prioritize youth who have barriers. <laughs> um, and when you have other barriers, you know, uh, all of those kind of four demographics that I mentioned, some of which intersect very strongly in specific clients that we work with, um, a lot of that either is connected to poverty, whether that's um, youth who um, are have grown up in poverty and you know, that's kind of a result of their identity or, you know, they find themselves disconnected from family because of um, maybe their queer trans identity or maybe a mental health issue. Um, so poverty and homelessness are really, um, and, and food insecurity are kind of the the main, that's, that's the most significant challenge that people in our program face. Um, so that, you know, that is connected to so many other things, you know, it obviously affects your mental health. (laughs) It's kind of like a positive feedback loop where if you don't have necessarily the kind of resources um, to get you out of a difficult situation, that affects your mental health. Um, And it also has implications for your career prospects. Um, So that's, you know, that's where Keys kind of comes in. Um, We are a job center and we do help youth get work ready um, and job ready. And so um, we try to support them in not necessarily overcoming those barriers. Like we would hope that that is kind of a long-term consequence, that they're more well-equipped with coping strategies and resilience to overcome those barriers. Mm -hmm. But we mostly just connect them to, you know, that consistent caring adult in the community, which really helps them see beyond the barriers or access more resources. You know, people are resources too. So when you're facing facing poverty, a lot of people in poverty um, understand the value of people as resources. And so connecting them to another resource who's committed and caring really helps them to kind of open their world and, and broaden some of the resources that they have access to. There's kind of specific challenges with dealing with those each of those groups. You know, Indigenous youth... Canada is, you know, we have like a complex and very violent history and contemporary reality when it comes to Indigenous youth in this country. And a lot of Indigenous youth have been very vocal in communicating to the media the challenges that their communities face, specifically around three residential schools and intergenerational trauma, um, alcoholism, suicide, um, unsafe drinking water, um, abuse. Unfortunately, like we do work with youth who um, come from those realities and again, that significantly impacts their mental health and significantly impacts their ability to vision for the future. You know, when you've come from a community that, um, you know, society has told you your culture is meaningless, it's, 
just a bunch of like um, weird stuff and mm. you know your people are alcoholics and drug addicts that's a that is an extremely detrimental stereotype to put on youth and to impose on people and so you know thinking that you know hey I can be bigger than that I'm I'm going to you know I'm going to look to all of the indigenous leaders that are lawyers and nurses and you know now we have like a, a you know a couple of doctors indigenous doctors and people who are really you know celebrating indigenous culture that's really crucial to overcoming those barriers and overcoming those challenges and then again with newcomers and refugees like again like you know coming from some some of the youth that we work with they've seen their family members like murdered in front of their eyes such a traumatic reality um and then they come to canada and it's freezing and Mm -hmm. you know sometimes the people are are not super nice either people definitely in kingston there's a lot of racism here and and a lot of xenophobia you know like people speaking with an accent and you being told oh you know i can't understand you like go go learn english like Mm. that's the reality of some of the youth that we work with and among many many other things and again, poverty, you know, like a lot of immigrant and refugee youth and their families are not given adequate resources to, to thrive um, when they first come here. So, you know, that's, there's like a complex set of mental health issues, um, cultural awareness, and also access to resources that when we work with, you know, immigrant and refugee youth, that, you know, we as program facilitators, we're really obligated to, to help them kind of with all of those pieces mm-hmm. um, so that they can fully participate in the mentoring partnership and fully and fully see the possibilities for their career. So yeah, that's a long answer. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot to say about the barriers that they face. And I mean, you've yeah. described complexity of different and unique issues that are faced by your different client groups. So given that, I mean, that's the complexity of that, what type of approach have you observed works best in supporting your different clients? So we have an incremental approach of engaging the mentees. So as Mike said, you know, we go to, we go to where the mentees are. We go to where youth are these days. So um, we work with uh, the immigrant services of Kingston area, their youth group, um, and we try to have a presence there, you know, once a month or, or a little bit, um, sometimes less than that, but we try to be there, you know, once a month or a couple times a semester. Um, we also work with uh, Pathways to Education and provide workshops there, as well as the Cataraqui Learning Center, which is an alternative school um, uh, that's part of the Limestone District School Board. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we offer workshops um, and, and small engagements with mentors as kind of, you know, like, baby steps. It's like, it's a, it's a small risk for a young person to take, you know, and we do very, sometimes we do very creative activities um, that comes from this model that Partners for Youth Empowerment developed, which is called the Creative Community Model. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's using creativity to offer little risks, um, slowly increasing risks to youth um, and building their life skills, communication, confidence, creativity, and so we find that those workshops are really, really useful in getting youth to open up, to be more comfortable talking to each other and us as adults. Um, you know, they have some uh, familiarity with Mike and myself, so they, you know, they trust us a little bit more. And then we also have um, speed mentoring events, which are very similar as well. So we, those um, are about 100 people that we get in one room, half mentees and half mentors. Um, you know, some of them are participating in the program and some of them just heard about the event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we offer kind of networking, soft networking, kind of fun engagements for interaction. And that's also a good way for them to kind of see, oh, okay, mentoring isn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be as intimidating as I thought it was going to be. Um, so it demystifies a little bit of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so once people are like, oh, okay, yeah, I feel like I could do, you know, I, maybe I want to mentor. Maybe I just want to meet people in 
fields that I'm interested in, then we'll set up a couple of opportunities for them to meet mentors, something that, you know, might be called informational interviews in the, the job employment, in the employment world. Um, so they get to meet a couple of mentors and kind of, again, demystify what a mentor means and just have a conversation, get to know them, kind of learn a little bit about their career and their job. Um, we have a few other ways of engaging them, but those are the primary ones. Then we, we match them for um, five months. And we provide, uh, and we also try to make, like, allow them to choose their mentor. That's, that's a new approach that we're trying to mm-hmm. give them more agency in that process. So they meet a couple of different mentors and then they get to choose, oh, yeah, I really connected with this one person. And just lots of support, you know, like once, once they're matched for five months, we try to check in with them. We ask them, you know, what's working for you, what's not. Sometimes we provide um, a workbook with resources, which is does not work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the best approach is hands-off and really just supporting them in choosing their own activities, um, you know, asking them, like, what are your ideas? What do you want to do? You know, what are the fun things in Kingston that, you know, maybe you couldn't do um, alone or with your friends that you could do with your mentor? Um, and that really, really works, giving them, you know, kind of a lack of structure and saying, you know, what are your best ideas? Let's do what you want to do. That really works. You just want to have fun. They want to have fun, and that actually facilitates the career exploration process. Just adding to to what Kaylee started to say about this kind of idea that we have about what a mentor is, we always kind of offer our own definition of of mentor, because for some people, mentor might mean a lot of things, right? And um, like I remember when I was a young person, I kind of had an idea of a mentor as like, you know, the karate kid, like Mr. Miyagi, or <laughs> I don't know, or Yoda, or very wise, sage, or powerful person who was going to somehow change my life with a little piece of advice, or open the perfect door for me, or rescue me from, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever problem was going on. And there are a lot of definitions of of mentor out there. Um, If you Google mentor, you might come across these articles about finding the right mentor and engaging your mentor and kind of uh, from a perspective of maybe uh, a grad student or something like that. So those, those, those are not exactly the kinds of mentors that we offer. Uh, a mentor for us is a person who's willing to put in the time and do the work of listening and, and just spending time with our clients mm-hmm. and building a mentoring relationship. We define a mentor as more of a friendly professional relationship, not a peer relationship, of course, because they're not the same age. Mm-hmm. What we've seen in our program and what we've read about is that if you're going to measure success in grades or employability, it always comes back to the relationship. If there was a relationship in place, if that bond happened, then it's much more likely that there will be indicators of success um, after the, re- the the mentoring relationship or, or even years, years down the road. When there is a bond, that good stuff happens. But if there's no bond, then nothing happens. There's no secret formula, but we do offer our own secret formula and we call it TAO, so T-A-O. And it's not like TAO the way. Uh, it's T stands for time, A is affection, and O is optimism. This is kind of our message for people who might be thinking about becoming a mentor who might be listening as well. Uh, if you can give your time, your affection, and your optimism, then you can be a mentor. You don't have to be CEO of you know some great company or you know a person in a position of power. If you have an hour a week where you can be optimistic and and show that you care and just listen to your mentee, then then you're going to be a great mentor. Well, it's it's obvious from listening to the both of you that you're very committed to your program. You're very knowledgeable about what you do and why you do it and how to carry it out. I'd love to hear a few success stories from great work that you guys are doing. The government um, requires qualitative or quantitative numbers, you know, like they're like, okay, um, how many youth are you serving? You know, how many got matched? And those successes, you know, we have a lot of really um, incredible stories of, you know, in some cases, like really strong transformation um, that people have experienced in our program. Um, so, you know, we can't share all of them. They're all very unique and all very different. Um, but I think we can focus on a few that the youth had a really powerful experience. And also, we learned something. You know, we got some really valuable feedback to improve the program 
for people who face similar barriers and similar challenges, and also just, you know, for us to, to kind of open our, our minds as far as um, serving youth properly. So I'll start with one story. Um, so uh, this young person, I'm going to call him David, um, he, he came to us, he was one of the very first young people that we worked with, um, and he had pretty significant disabilities that I wasn't necessarily, we, you know, I wasn't fully aware of how they impacted him in his life, and he was reading, he was reading and writing and co- kind of comprehending at a grade two level, um, but also very personable, really interested in people, very good at um, communicating his feelings and being really self-aware. Um, so he wasn't fully aware of his barriers of reading and writing and, uh, and his other disabilities. And he really wanted to learn about becoming a security guard. So, you know, in the beginning of our program, it was very much like, okay, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to match career to career. So, you know, David wants to be a security guard, so we're going to match him with a security guard. So we found a security guard. Um, and we, you know, we set them up and, and we had this meeting. Um, and at that time, we weren't doing our mentor training. We were just kind of matching people. Not a lot of structure. Like uh, we would make a, we would build an action plan and do some goal setting at, at a few initial sessions, and then it would kind of be like, okay, you're off to the races. Like these are the things that you're going to do. Mm. Um, so they met pretty consistently, and um, David realized, you know, his mentor was very, very dedicated and really, just really enjoyed hanging out with him. Like he was, you know, his mentor was really um, just had a lot of fun with him, and. So his mentor provided him with a couple of opportunities to explore what it was like to be a security guard. So they went on, um, they did a couple of, um, I forget what they're called, but like driving, driving around like a security site and kind of seeing what that's like, um, you know, filling out, doing a lot of computer work, filling out the forms and reports, you know, incident reports. Um, and, you know, just all of these little components and talking about the certification that he needed to get and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, after a couple of months, um, David was, you know, David realized, ah, I can't actually be a security guard. My, you know, he was like, oh, my, my disability is, is so significant. Like the reading and writing component is so significant. Um, being extremely accurate because of liability, you know, regarding incident reports and capturing all that data, um, he, he realized, oh, I can't, I can't actually do this. Um, but his mentor was very committed and said, you know, I really like this guy. I'm going to stick it out with him. And, um, they started exploring other career options and okay. So, you know, okay. We thought we were going to get you into being a security guard, but, um, now we have, now the whole world is open to us. So let's figure out, you know, based on your interests, based on, um, your skill set, because he does have skills, you know, but he just has this this barrier, um, what are the other options? And they worked really hard to figure out a couple of different options. Um, so they haven't, you know, um, David hasn't specifically chosen something yet, but but having that opportunity, like we learned from, from his experience, um, you know, we provided lots of written resources and lots of suggested activities, and we realized, oh, for someone who's reading at a grade two level, you know, we need to make it accessible. Mm. And so that process of making our program accessible to people with significant learning disabilities was was really, you know, that had huge impact for him and his success in the program mm-hmm. and him feeling, oh, yeah, I really, you know, I really loved these activities. Once I could understand them, you know, he was, once he could understand them, he was really excited to, to dig his teeth into them. And, and he did a lot of um, creative activities, career exploration activities, um, you know, informational interviews. It just was making it accessible to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, realizing that, that having this opportunity, this program that um, can help you rule out a career is just as valuable as finding the career that, that fits. You know, he was he was going to spend you know probably a couple thousand dollars on tuition to to go to a very specific security certification to get into this to a to a position that he wanted, and you know his family was very grateful that they didn't have to shell out that money and get in debt. Sure. And um, knowing that, like learning for us and learning for him that that it's also it is a success 
to to learn that something is not a good fit was was really eye opening. How important is that? And I mean, I can think of a lot of people that I know that went through college and university that got three years in and were like, I don't want to do this. And then now what? You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. That was Kaylee and Mike from Keys Job Center. They will be back next week for part two of our interview discussing their mentoring program and all the great things it's doing for young people in our community. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. The Smashing Pumpkins were formed in 1988. Billy Corgan and James Iha met at a used record shop where Corgan worked. Darcy Retsky joined after meeting Corgan outside a bar and getting into an argument over the band The Dan Reed Network. They began playing as a three-piece with a drum machine until Chamberlain was found through a classified ad. The band goes on to play their first gig, opening for Jane's Addiction. Afterwards, they're quickly signed by Virgin Records. Corrigan is known as a notorious perfectionist, He plays all of the instruments on Siamese Dream himself, although his band still receives full credit. During the tour for Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, touring keyboardist Jonathan Melvoin dies of a heroin overdose. He was with drummer Chamberlain, who also overdosed but survived. Chamberlain was subsequently fired and replaced by Matt Walker of Filter. Dennis Flemian of the Frogs replaces Melvoin. To promote their album Adore, the Pumpkins wanted to comprise their tour solely of free shows. This was denied in all states except Minnesota, where they performed outdoors in the middle of downtown Minneapolis. The mayor at the time declared it Smashing Pumpkins Day. The profits of the remainder of their tour were donated to charity. In 2000, the Pumpkins released the album Machina, The Machines of God. Chamberlain rejoined the band while Darcy quit. She was replaced by Melissa Ulf Dumauer of the band Hole. Pumpkin's final album before their 2006 reunion was called Machina 2, The Friends and Enemies of Modern Music. Only 25 copies of the album were pressed. These copies were given to fans to distribute over the internet for free. The band then broke up on December 2nd, 2000. After nearly two decades of drama, the Pumpkins have reunited their classic lineup, sort of, for a summer tour. This according to RollingStone.com. Billy Corgan, guitarist James Iha, and drummer Jimmy Chamberlain will be playing together without the aid of Darcy Retsky, the band's bassist from 88 through to 99. Here are the Smashing Pumpkins with Tonight, Tonight. CFRC 101.9 FM, that was the Smashing Pumpkins with Tonight Tonight. Here they are with Disarm. Disarm you with a smile. Try that on the sidewalk today. CFRC 101.9 FM, that was the Smashing Pumpkins with their long-ago hit, Disarm. They have a reunion tour coming up. It is called the Shiny and Oso Bright Tour. Starts July 12th in Arizona and wraps up September the 7th at the Ford Idaho Center in Boise. Tickets went on sale February the 23rd. Tour notably coincides with the 30th anniversary of the Smashing Pumpkins formation. During the tour, the band will exclusively play songs off their first five albums. 1991's Gish, 
93, Siamese Dream. 95, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. 98, Adore. And 2000, if you can guess it, Machina. Corgan says, this show and staging will be unlike anything we've ever done and will feature a set unlike anything we've ever played. For if this is a chance at a new beginning, we plan on ushering it in with a real bang. The official tour announcement comes after a lengthy buildup that included plenty of open secrets and infighting. A lot of drama. The bassist reportedly was going to be included. Now she's not. Different stories on why she's not being included. There has been a rocky relationship between the bassist Darcy Retsky and the band for many, many years. So, if you want to check out the Pumpkins, see if you can get some tickets. If you're a fan, you might want to check this tour out. Sounds interesting. Some people find that reunion tours work out really, really well. Fans find that the shows are its like they never left. For many people, it's like a tour down memory lane that's maybe something that's better left in the past. Smashing Pumpkins. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. If you are a post-secondary student dealing with a issue or a serious crisis, all situations are welcome. You can call 1-866-925-5454. That is the Good to Talk helpline. You can receive free professional confidential counseling support. This is for students in Ontario. So if you're dealing with anxiety, depression, if something that's bothering you, you just need to get it off your chest, call this helpline, 1-866-925-5454. Great service, available to everybody. All it takes is a phone call. If you want to check out their website, go to goodtotalk.ca. You can browse around, get familiar with what's happening there, and then make that call if you're struggling. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and cfrc.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgauthier.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety, Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. The address, 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.